Welcome to the show, everybody. I um, want to apologize for uh, my guest's audio on on this one. I was hearing some things. I've, I ran a test. I listened back to a little test sample. It sounded fine. And then whatever happened when we recorded, um, it, it's just not up to the the standard I'd like it to be, but it's still, it's a great episode. In fact, I've been talking about this episode, uh, to a bunch of different friends. I was, I was just hanging out, um, with, uh, with a couple friends just, uh, last night, like a week after I recorded this or so, and was, uh, sharing some fun biomimicry facts, uh, super interesting subject matter, fantastic guest. It's so unfortunate, you know, doing these things remotely. You guys, you guys know the deal, but I know that I'm not just, uh, I'm constantly making improvements. So just to give you an idea of, uh, where, where I'm at one, your Patreon support helps a lot. Um, this is a small show. I don't have celebrity guests on and stuff, you know, the world isn't, as into science as you listeners are. Um, this show's never going to be like the top uh, science podcast or this or that, you know. I go through academia getting all these random guests and we get to hear about so many different cool areas of research from the people that actually do it and just normal folks with academic jobs doing great science. And uh, so your support makes a huge difference. I have a very, very, very small budget. You can see it on Patreon. It's public. And so your contribution matters a lot because so the main big plan, and I'll tell you kind of some of the stop gaps um, to hopefully improve things um, between now and then is I have a few different things, a few different like bigger projects that I'm sorting out. And since, uh, since summer's rolled around and people started getting vaccinated and everything and kind of plotting out my next move and various other projects that hopefully I'll get to tell you about sometime soon when a little more is known. Um, but I kind of don't have a clear, um, picture of where I'm going to be in the fall or winter just yet, but wherever I land up, I'm kind of trying to tour less than I was. Um, before COVID, I was in three cities a week. And so I'd go into guests, I'd have my audio equipment. We'd, it wasn't video, you know. Um, and so I'd bring my audio equipment everywhere and set it up. Uh, adding video is another level of complication. So my goal is in sorting out where I want to live, some of it's going to be dependent on uh, if one of these big projects comes through or if uh, if there's development on, on a few of those fronts. But uh, I think the plan would be to get a studio somewhere um, in, you know, build a studio somewhere in a place um, that has a lot of scientists around and a lot of scientists that come through um, and so I'm kind of thinking about different cities uh, where that would make the most sense, plus the other things that I'm working on. And then I would have guests join me in a studio so we don't run into uh, <laughs> um, some of the production quality issues that are just, frankly, they're 
probably more frustrating for me than they are for you guys. You're probably going to hear the episode and think it's not a big deal at all. I I want things to eventually just sound absolutely perfect and, um, you know, have perfect video and everything else. That's what we're going for. That's what I keep on working towards. Um, it's been a huge, huge learning experience adding all of this stuff. We just started using a new program recently, and it's been fantastic, but um, also not perfect. There's been no perfect solution in every case, and every guest has a different setup. And so one of the things is I'm, I'm considering maybe mailing uh you know, a cheap but um, reliable microphone to each of my guests, that would be a pretty easy solution to at least get the audio quality uh, um, up and reliable. And to do that, that I don't have that in the budget right now. It's not that much money. It wouldn't require that much more um, Patreon support, but it would require more than what I'm uh, what I'm getting right now. So if you go to patreon.com uh, slash Shane Moss and consider donating, we do some board games um, sometimes, and sometimes I just post other miscellaneous stuff. And there's a community and Discord on there and lots of other cool things. So check that out if you like, and we will use that to keep on improving this show if you don't have money um, and even if you do please write a review for this show on iTunes and Stitcher and um, or wherever you do your podcasting and that helps uh, that helps engagement um, makes me feel wonderful to read those things it helps other people uh, to read through them if you write something like a little more thoughtful and descriptive that helps people make a uh, know if it's kind of the show for them as they scroll through the reviews, especially with a show like this where where every episode is like, you don't know, is there going to be an audio issue? Is it like my guest's first time ever doing a podcast and they're nervous? Is it, uh, it you know, is, is the subject matter something that's like over my head or isn't in my r- usual wheelhouse? And I think this show, considering all the variables of it, and it's a, a pretty, it's been a pretty intimidating project for seven years. Actually, every time I do one of these, um, but I, I think, I think the show's, especially since COVID, been uh, content-wise, um, pretty darn consistent. And I feel like uh, I've, I've learned so much more as a host doing things remotely and everything too. So, pros and cons to everything, and part of the remote stuff has. Uh, has uh, there's been a lot of advantages to it and I've learned a lot and it's been super cool and we have video now and um, I can better get like authors on and stuff because I don't need to time it out for when I happen to be in their city and I happen to have an extra day and it's a day that they happen to have open doing the remote thing makes a lot of stuff uh, a lot easier so thinking about ways that I can continue to improve this. So there's a long-winded little thing of what's going on, but you know this is uh, ad-free, supported by Patreon, and even these intros and outros I try to limit as you've, if you're a regular listener. Uh, we often just play the episode just because um, I don't like when I'm listening to a podcast 
and I have to hear a bunch of stuff marketed to me and everything else. So I try to limit that as much as I can. So if you support that and this show, um, consider checking out Patreon. You guys are awesome. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am very excited for this show today. I'm, uh, you guys may not know. Um, this about me, but one of the reasons why I have this podcast, I, I had an interest in science for much of my adult life, but I had a period of time when I started just obsessively watching uh, the animal planet and watching tons of documentaries and David Attenborough and that sort of stuff. And it just got me thinking so much about life and exploring science even more than I already was and obsessing over all of these different ideas. And uh, and so it's pretty cool that I'm actually getting to talk to someone that was on an Animal Planet show, co-host of the show Little Giants, which I just started watching. And I recommend you guys check it out as well. And... Maybe one of the cooler titles, we've had a lot of people on this show, you're, uh, Billy, you're 300 some, we're, we're nearing 400 episodes here, and you're the first yes. astro-biofuturist on the show. Billy Ooh. Allman is joining me today. Billy, how are you doing? <laughs> Good, Shane. What's going on? Oh, not much, man. I'm I'm very excited to talk to you because one, well, I'd love for you to tell people a little bit about your background. Anyway, you were recommended to me by by I think a, a couple different past guests, and then I started following you on Instagram. Got into your stuff. I love what you're doing, and I want to know what is a astro bio futurist. If that requires maybe setting up a little bit of how you got into it and your background first, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you uh, for for asking that question. So, um, as an astro bio futurist, I essentially um, look at how can we reimagine um, different portions or different elements of the human condition uh, of human experiences how can we reimagine them for people who will ultimately be traveling um to the moon to the mars uh you know eventually further out into the in, out into the galaxy uh and and also how can we use what we develop and create in order to do that for people amongst the stars how can we use and leverage a lot of that technology, creativity, and thinking to reimagine a lot of human experiences here on good old planet Earth? And a lot of that work for me is rooted in my background as an experienced designer and storyteller, uh, creating immersive experiences for companies that create places of magic and happiness, uh, and also my background as a uh, practitioner of biomimicry, which is this um, approach to innovation where you're studying organisms in nature in order to uh, mimic and imitate their sustainable natural strategies of problem solving. So it's combining those two things to uh, not only look at how can we reimagine certain experiences for people in space, but also um, how can we improve just the human condition here on Earth? 
Oh man, what do I want to talk about first? I, I mean, I I started looking at your work and I was kind of shocked and disappointed with myself <laughs> that we've never had an episode talking about biomimicry oh, before. Man. It's just one of the coolest subjects. I uh, uh, so you know, much of this show we we talk uh quite a bit about like evolutionary biology and psychology, a, a, a lot of human mind stuff, but also how it relates to in what we can learn from, you know, evolutionary processes and, and wildlife and do a fair amount of not enough episodes about wildlife, but a fair amount. And I was like, how in the world have I missed biomimicry? What, what a blind spot. So could you, uh, could you tell people a little bit about what biomimicry, what biomimicry yeah, is. So and and by the way, can, can I at least, am I at least able to say when you're talking about designing experiences and stuff, you're talking about things like amusement parks and stuff like that, sometimes it, integrating some of your work into improving uh, entertainment experiences like that by using things uh, from within nature. Yes, right? exactly. Okay, so first of all, I am so honored to be the disciple that brings forth the good news of biomimicry <laughs> to you and your audience. So thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. It's so important. It's so important. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, so when I'm referring to my, my uh, background as uh, an experienced designer, it is, uh, you know, spent over a decade um, working for uh, a certain company that has, you know, theme parks and cruise ships and um, hotels and resorts <laughs> Um, in places cool. like California and Florida. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I use that experience of, you know, how do you craft, how do you craft uh, a place, a, a moment in time that will imprint memories on you and your family um, and leave you feeling better than you came. And so I, I use that lens of, of storytelling and creativity in the work that I do as, as an astrobiofuturist. Uh, as it pertains to biomimicry, biomimicry is this great, amazing um, process uh, and approach to problem solving where, uh, and it's something that has been done and practiced by humans since, you know, time immemorial, really, where we are looking at nature, we're studying how, you know, um, different organisms go about solving problems for life at their scale. And then we essentially isolate or identify the strategy that they're using and we replicate it to address problems at the human scale. So one of the examples that I always use when referring to biomimicry is the example of Velcro. Mm -hmm. the, the Swiss inventor who came up with the idea for Velcro, he would always take his dogs for walks through the forest and he would come home and he'd realize that there's these little uh, spherical burr seeds that were always caught in his dog's fur every time that they came back from these, these forest walks. And he, I grew up all around them. Okay, so perfect. So you might you might already yeah. you might already know the story. Um, so he, one day he took one of those burr seeds under a microscope, and he noticed that there were all of these little curly Q little hooks that were coming off of the main uh, seed of the spear. Uh, and he realized like this is actually a really cool and dope way to attach things to each other. And that was the biological function uh, of of that uh, little curly Q little hook. It was to attach to animals that would be traveling through the forest so that the seeds could be so that the seeds would latch onto the fur and then be carried off to other places where they could essentially propagate and grow into other plants and, and trees and so forth. 
Um, so he came back with the, he he took that idea, and from that he created what we all use as Velcro, this method of attaching things to each other in a simple way. Yeah. Um, so that's an example of of what biomimicry is, and it can be applied and has been applied to so many different ways. Uh, and there's a lot of really cool examples of um, of how biomimicry has already impacted or informed space exploration, uh, and how is a, a lot of people are turning to nature for um, thinking of how we will explore other planets. It just makes me upset that we don't wear Velcro as adults, like as as I think about it. And and by the way, you can tell that the burrs came from that because if you if you live around, I remember as a child they would always attach right to the Velcro, making and which would kind of render the Velcro useless. Uh, <laughs> ironically enough, if you get enough of those sand burrs on there. But what are we doing with laces, Billy? What in the, like, oh, I'm an adult. Look what I can do. I can tie knots. It's like a tie. It's like, oh, cool. You can do a double winch. But why would you? Why Why are you, why are we putting this thing around? It's so overrated. Completely we got to bring overrated. Velcro back. Most so, of my shoes, most of my shoes at this point, even as an adult, I don't think I have, I don't think I have a lot of shoes with, laces actually i prefer i you prefer got, like straps and velcro like it's just easier it's just easier it's like how much time i gotta bend over you know now my back oh, is all man. hurting and I'm sore back because i had to tie my shoe like that doesn't seem right my shoes That's are not, always untied too and no. then people make fun of me for them being uh, like i gotta stop playing whatever sport to tie my shoes and yeah. people are like double knotted and it's a whole it's nothing a whole about the pursuit of happiness aligns with tying <laughs> your shoes. It's just, it's just not part of the constitution. <laughs> Can I, uh, uh, I'll share my, my early experience with learning about biomimicry and cause I, I'd really like to dig in. I mean, I always, I always love to take the conversation in whatever direction my guests like, but uh, I, I hope we can talk a bunch about biomimicry oh, and yeah. I want to, I want to make sure and touch on your show as well. Let's but, do um, it. Uh, more than touch on your show, plug the heck out of your show. But uh, are are you familiar with uh, Ray Anderson? I am familiar with Ray. Anderson. Ever heard of him? I have. Yes. So I don't I don't know how in the world I came across this, but this is like over a decade ago. I just happened to pick up this audio book by this guy Ray. I think maybe I saw a TED talk by him or something like that. He's he's unfortunately passed away a few years ago or something, but he was this. Uh, I, I think I was living in Texas at the time, and um, and I'm from Wisconsin. I was interested in communicating science in like rural areas and areas that were maybe not the most um, uh, enthusiastic about hearing about science always. I was working a lot of comedy clubs at the time and, and it was kind of sometimes hard to convey some of the ideas. And, and I thought like, here's this guy with this Southern twang and is very like likable and everything. And he is this carpet manufacturer that just in the last couple decades of his life just started seeing the writing on the wall with climate change and thought, uh, how do we, how, how do I be make a business that's more sustainable? And he started looking into biomimicry. I don't, like I said, I've read this book like 12 or listened to this book like 12 years ago or something. But I remember hearing, you know, taking things like um, uh, looking at the jungle or forest floor 
and and seeing that it's like well not everything's uniform on the floor here why are carpets so uniform and developing this kind of recyclable patchwork system of carpets so you know hotel gets this this patch this beautiful patchwork of all these different colors and and designs and then when there's a big stain on some piece you pull off this one particular piece like pulling a leaf off of the ground or something like that and and replacing it with a with a similar sized um portion rather than having to redo everything every uh every five ten years or whatever in these high traffic areas and it was just a lot of ideas like that and it just really captured my my imagination and i and i've always been into like i said watching animal planet type stuff and uh and and like you said this is what humans have been doing since kind of the dawn of time whether we're aware of it or not has has been taking insights from nature and adapting them into technologies that we use yeah and and you know what's what's cool is i mean he he also set up well there there was set up you know, kind of in in his honor, this award for, you know, people who were looking to apply biomimicry to other types of businesses uh, called the Ray of Hope Prize. And it's like, you know, um, I want to say it's like $100,000 prize to, you know, startups, uh, people that are looking to use biomimicry to do like amazing things and address co- climate change. And and with the example that you gave of the of the carpet. I mean, it was, it was a huge game changer because one of the things about that particular example was it was also a way that reduced a lot of the, um, the, the chemicals that are used in blue, you know, they found a way because of how, you know, I think they were looking at how leaves fall on the forest and how detritus kind of forms in this forest floor. Uh, and so in the interlocking system that they created, it, I believe, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at this example, but, um, you know, the, the, the carpet themselves, the carpet, the way that the carpet works is it also leverages friction as a way to keep down without using a lot of toxic glues and a lot of chemicals as, as adhesives. So that in and of itself was a huge, huge thing. Um, yeah, having like jigsaw pieces, uh, locking together instead, sort of. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, so, and I, I remember kind of the, I think the name of the book was Confessions of a Radical Industrialist or something that I read, but uh, it was a, a pretty grandiose title, but it was, it was, it was impactful on me. And it was uh, it, it, because it will also, he ended up doubling his profit margins by, by doing all these things that most companies look at and they're like, they're trying to regulate us and it's going to ruin the economy. And this is all this huge investment and, and this and that. And he was able to show that integrating these processes were, were, was a way to save money and to make things more efficient, to make things actually more profitable, which helped the planet, which helped the business owners, which kind of helped. It was just a win, win, win there for everyone involved. Awesome. And there, there has to be, there has to be a lot of stuff like that oh. out there, right? Like, like some, some of these innovations where we go like, well, we can't rely on fossil fuel or something like that. So I guess we have to make this accommodation and some compromise and we'll have to put this extra effort into doing things. But some of the, some of the things that we're learning from nature are untapped efficiencies that actually make us more productive than we are than we were without. Oh yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's one of the, 
the real appeals of biomimicry, right? For the people who aren't just like, we should be doing this because it's closer to how, you know, nature works, which means it's inherently more sustainable for right. the people who are just like, show me the numbers of why I should be doing this, which there's plenty of, of people who think that way. It's the fact that nature is inherently efficient by nature. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like 3.5 billion years of research and development. Exactly. Okay. See, you know, you know, what's up. Um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was about to say like, that's one of, that's one of the taglines is, you know, there, you know, the natural world has been in this process of test and adjust for a very, 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 very long time. And we are just now tapping into that. So the things that nature has already figured out don't work. You know, they, they do translate to, you know, efficiencies and, you know, economies of scale and, and all of these things. You know, um, there's one, one other example that um, people might be familiar with is the, the Tokyo um, maglev train that was designed to mimic the form of a kingfisher bird. There was an, uh, an engineer who was also an ornithologist who was tasked with making this, uh, this subway uh, his, his primary task was every time that this train would go through a tunnel, it would create a sonic boom. And the neighbors who lived in that, uh, uh, in that area, they would always complain that this train is driving us nuts. Right. So he and was And the tasked, real estate agents would complain about that too. Like, don't mind, you know, there, there's, there's a few sonic booms yeah. throughout the day in this neighborhood. Other, other than that. You're going to yeah. love the views. Sonic boom, man. But the views are killer. That's what you're really paying for. <laughs> so, so he was tasked with coming up with a way to reduce, you know, to get rid of the sonic boom. And he was a bird watcher. So one day he was, you know, he was watching these birds. He saw a kingfisher that swooped into the water. And because of the way that its skull and its beak works, it, it creates, you know, very minimal to non-existent splashing when it goes in the water wow. to capture fish. Uh, and he redesigned this maglev train to, to kind of have that aerodynamic form that it has. And not only did it get rid of the sonic boom, but it, it increased the efficiency uh, of, of, the, of fuel of, you know, it increased its power efficiency by 30%. Wow. So, you know, there are forms in nature, there are patterns, there are textures, um, you know, there are, you know, all kinds of different mechanisms that are at play in nature to help all of these living things around us be as efficient as possible. Right. Like, yeah. you know, just to give a, a gross example, um, you know, the reason why birds poop while they're flying is because it, it alleviates the weight that they carry while they're flying, yeah. which reduces the amount of energy that they have to expend to stay in the air. Yeah. It's, it's part of a stress response system too. in a lot of mammals when, when they're about right. to be right. uh, exactly. chased by something, release all that extra yeah. cargo and, and run like hell. That's even our, even our fight flight or, or freeze response has the same thing. Your bladder loosens up yeah. so you can like, you know, get your little Usain Bolt on and like peace out <laughs> yeah. of the situation. Right. Like that's exactly. That's part of it. So you know, all of these inherent efficiencies are, are what we are beginning to tap into as more and more people begin to practice biomimicry. I mean, I think this is one of the amazing things of and, and the one of the big downsides of that people are unaware of, of of some of the kind of climate de um, denial or just science den uh, denial generally is that is that 
it might not be nice to think about problems, but knowing and recognizing problems can sometimes create opportunities. I mean, that train example is a perfect example of what, what if they would have never had to do this pain in the butt task of, uh, like, okay, you bunch of whiners, we'll get rid of the sonic boom <laughs> scaring <laughs> your dogs and children every every 20 minutes oh. or so. What if they wouldn't have ever had to address that? They would have never found something that's 30% more efficient, which makes the which makes the cost of getting on that train more reasonably priced. It makes the the profit margins higher. It it makes the uh, amount of fuel and energy used to push that that train less. It's just again, it's it, it, I mean, it's easy to cherry pick these survivorship uh, th- things and be like, why can't everything be like this? And there's reasons why you, yeah, we yeah. use that one great example like that as well. It's not always that easy, but identifying problems can come with a lot of opportunities, and and we've seen that a lot with biomimicry. Um. What what do you uh, what do you uh, could you talk a little bit about? I heard you mention. Did you say economies of scale? Was that the term that I heard you use? Could you yeah. could you define that? Um. So so loose definition, not you know, economic uh, economist definition, but um, just in terms of when you have something that is efficient, when you when you produce multiple numbers of that the the cost of producing it starts to go down right so the the more that i have of this one machined you know modular thing uh if i produce more of it the cost of each individual unit uh begins to decrease over time so as i scale it up i'm 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 the cost of it becomes more and more economic the more i produce um uh, and so, so the the example that is it's not a, a one to one example, but the the one thing that comes to mind when I think of that is, you know, the shape of a honeycomb, right? The 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 shape of a honeycomb, the hexagon, is uh, I want to say it's the most efficient form um, that you know mathematicians have identified, right? Uh, and there's been a lot of speculation on how bees actually create this form. Is it, you know, is it the form that they actually create, or is it a form that eventually forms over time as wax starts to melt in place and things begin to solidify. Um, you know, do bees start with circles that they make their hives out of and then they essentially form into hex- hexagonal patterns over time. Um, but, you know, the hexagon is a, is a shape that you see in a lot of designs, um, not only because it's efficient, but because of, you know, its flexibility and its ability to kind of, um, you know, be able to fit into any particular location. So. There's this idea that, um, you know, there's these, these things that we refer to as deep patterns in nature. And one of those deep patterns is, um, you know, things being modular um, uh, and, and being able to be, you know, packaged and repackaged. Like, you know, a cell in a lot of ways is, is a modular system, right? It replicates, but it's still, you know, essentially the same. Um, so another example is, you know, a lot of people are excited about the potential of, additive manufacturing and 3D printing, you know, that's something you can find in nature, right? Like there's paper wasps who essentially, um, you know, actually there's a lot of different creatures who, you know, additively create their, their dwellings and their homes. 
Um, so I don't have a specific example of that translation into economies of scale, uh, but the the examples in nature are prevalent. What do paper wasps do? So paper wasps, they, they essentially, you know, ingest something and then they with their saliva when they're building their their shelters, I'll say it's it's very much like, you know, if you've ever seen a 3D printer, you know, take the take the filament and then just like layer by layer mm -hmm. produce something paper wasp and a lot of organisms uh, create, I guess that's a hive uh, the same way. They, they essentially, you know, do it like like that. If that, if that makes sense at all. Right, right. You know, the other example for me that I love around additive manufacturing in nature is actually spiders, right? Like spiders in their in their body, they actually have these four chambers that have uh, four different kind of chemical uh, combinations or, or components within them. And then uh, they actually mix those four chambers together to create different types of, of webbing uh, composites. Mm -hmm depending on what the spider needs to use that web for. So some might be sticky, some might be thin and strong, um, but it's the same kind of process of taking these chambers and then mixing this chemical uh, construction to create and produce something that will then be used to manufacture a web. So it's just, I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Like we're not doing anything new. I mean, why, why aren't we seeing that in the Spider-Man movies? That's an underutilized Spider-Man. He's always just swinging from a thing or maybe a shoot, maybe a shoot a thing and it clogs up a gun. That's about all he, he's not building a home. <laughs> he He's not, he could be making his own, his own suit. He has someone else make his suit. He could make, he could weave his own suit out of, if you're a real Spider-Man, I feel like you make your own suit yeah. out of your bodily yeah. thing i mean that's uh, he he's really not not utilizing spider-man could could take a look at spiders and maybe learn a few things I'll, I'll cut him a little bit of slack on that because i feel like you know the one thing with web is at, at some point you know it, it begins to break down so the last thing you want is to be in your spider web suit that's true like swinging through the air and that's the only thing you have on. And then yeah. it just starts to decompose as you're trying to, like, you know, attach to the Empire State Building. Right. right? As you're yeah. swimming through New York. Right. Embarrassing situation. You know, so I'll, I'll cut up some slack there. They're going to see more than your face and your oh, secret yeah. identity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's yeah, the that's, other part, right? Like, I mean, let's not cut Spider-Man too much slack, but sure. I mean, I'll, 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 give, it, I'll give it to him. I'll give it to him there. I'll reach out for Sure. What, what a, so so what about um what about because uh, i i think this will start from you know talking about global things and and integrate in with uh with astro bio uh futurism and and integrating things into space but could you talk a little bit about um i'd like to talk about circular economies a little bit because it's another thing we we haven't talked about on the show that's related that that um, you know, evolution, at least, at least in the scale, uh, at least in over this long period of time has been able to make use of every damn thing. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of waste. What, what's, what's waste for one thing? We, you know, the classic example of, of waste is, uh, is, you know, going to the bathroom, 
well, if you're if you're a dung beetle or all sorts of insects or whatever, you, you know, you're you're going to make use of that. That becomes fertilizer. That turns into a tree. There's we uh, we had an episode recently um, uh, uh, called the bar- body farm episode in uh, the University of Kentucky, where they they show what happens to a decomposing body and what happens to the ecosystem and how much the ecosystem uses. So you think about, oh, that life is gone. What a waste. And that doesn't, you know, it no longer exists. It does. It actually creates all this new life all, all around in this ecosystem. And then, um, you know, modern humans come around and, and uh, uh, we have, uh, you know, starts with uh, the, the industrial revolution and then, or, or the agricultural mm-hmm. revolution and then moves into an industrial revolution. And mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. It not, you know, a, a lot of species, no species out there is sitting like, well, I better pick up after myself or whatever. It's just that other things make use of their waste over time. Yep. And there's this and there's this symbiotic relationship. And this happens over long, 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 long periods of time and thousands of years, millions of years. And it's just that the waste that humans are making it's happening really quickly and it's and it's a dramatic change. So could we talk a little bit about like maybe that and a little bit of what could be learned from nature and how nature yeah. manages waste? Yeah, it's funny when you brought that up. OK, so as of this recording, the Milwaukee Bucks just won the world championship, uh, the National Basketball Association World Championship. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that means that right now there yep. are shipping containers full of t-shirts that say Phoenix Suns world champions. <laughs> the Phoenix Suns right? world champions. are being shipped <laughs> from the United States to, you know, some island country right now and being dumped, <laughs> right? Like we, we export our trash here in the United States, right? Meanwhile, they're living in this bizarro reality where they're like, they think the Phoenix Suns are the best basketball team out there. Right. And <laughs> right. And it, it, so, 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 you know, my mind, that's exactly where when you talk about circular economy, you talk about waste. Uh, yeah. You know, that's the first thing that goes to my mind is like that fresh shipment of shirts, you know, that someone is saying, yeah. you know, because we export our trash to other nations. Um, and so for me, I think it's, Personally, I think that we need the, you know, a Manhattan era, a Manhattan project equivalent initiative for, for trash. Like we, because it's just, you know, I I just saw a report the other day that showed that microplastics are showing up on the backs of bees. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. like, so, you know, if you've ever seen a bee flying around and you've got to see like a macro shot and you see like all the pollen attached to that, to a bee, right? Imagine that being pieces Mm -hmm. of you know, straws or forks or, you know, what have you that's attached to these bees, right? We've got whales and all, all kinds of, you know, ocean marine life that's showing up with stomachs full of trash in the ocean. You know, they've, they've discovered that mm-hmm. at the very bottom of the ocean, at, at the deepest depths that we can go, they're finding trash. At the bottom of the ocean, mm-hmm. there have been more people yeah. that have explored space than have ever been to the deepest parts of the ocean and yet our trash is there right so um when you talk about the circular economy for me the the biggest thing is you know we need more 
not only do we need more, but we also need an accelerant for the companies that already exist that serve the role of decomposer in an ecosystem. So you brought up, um, you know, dung beetles, worms, all these things that take, you know, what exists and breaks it down and, and translate it. You know, the, the thing that, um, the thing that is often underappreciated about decomposers in an ecosystem is that they're also producers. They don't just break stuff down. They turn it into nutrients for other organisms to capitalize on. And so we need, in my opinion, more companies that are focused on purely digesting the waste that's produced and, and converting it into something else. And, you know, I think when you have more companies that are doing that, I think there's also a life cycle that that in order for us to get rid of all this trash, my personal you know theory is that we need companies that only live for a certain amount of time to accomplish the goal of decomposing something, and then that company goes away because I think that the livelihood you know the the way that companies are structured now to live forever at all costs um I think it's it's inherently problematic to the system of circularity that we're trying to to create the decomposing company decomposes itself in the end a self-destructing decomposing company you know i was just uh, a few weeks ago um visiting an old uh high school buddy here in my hometown and he was talking about he's he's a fisherman and he was talking about how mm. you know he the you can't you can't eat fish that are of a certain size because it means that they've been around long enough that they have x amount of uh, of mercury the longer a fish has been alive the more mm. mercury it has in it and that is such a bizarre uh world that we now live in um, imagine imagine our ancestors even um you know a, a few hundred years ago being like, oh, don't eat that fish. That one's too big. That, that, yeah. You know, it's it's <laughs> incredible the predicament that we find ourselves in, and uh, and yeah, it, it there's there's something too that that we've we've built this not just an economy but a we've built status and praise on this idea of of building and innovations in terms of, I, I I mean, some people might deny science or whatever, but everyone wants their new iPhone or whatever else. That's a, that's mm. a, you have a job at Silicon Valley. You, you, you made some new app. You created this thing. That's a sexy job. You, you got a bunch of money. You're now driving around the Tesla or whatever. You tell people that you're a professional decomposer you know, it doesn't. It doesn't have the same ring at your at your yeah. uh, you know dinner parties and stuff. And and there there needs to be some sort of cultural shift in in terms of. And I I think there is. I think that there's already like you know lifestyles of the rich and famous and sort of thing that I I grew up seeing mm -hmm. on TV mm -hmm. is like kind of tacky. Now, you know, I think people are starting to get keen. People are starting to people are starting to be into, you know, having a tiny home and a compost pile and that sort of thing. But but yeah, it, 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 how how do you as 
because you do a lot of education and public speaking on these on these topics. How do you engage the public? On is it a lot of my philosophy is uh, around the idea of meeting people where they are, right? Like not everybody's ready to to make the leap into being vegan and you know driving you know uh, a Prius, right? You know, right. But some people can become more aware of turning their lights off when they leave a room. Right. Like it, those things at this point, we have it, we have to do everything. There's no silver bullet for sustainability. So we have to do everything to just move as many people as close as possible to, you know, the ideal finish line as possible. So a lot of my, you know, a lot of, you know, my my talks or workshops are just on either showing people where the door is um, or, or getting them through the door. And, and hopefully letting the curiosity that I've kind of, um, uh, you know, um, triggered, take them further through the gateway. But I, I feel like a lot of my work yeah. is just around, let me introduce you, let me expose you to these new ways of thinking, these new things that are out there, these new career paths uh, for students, um, these new ways to design for, you know, when I talk to design students, um, it's it's a lot of, let me introduce you to this idea and show you why it's valuable and why it's valuable to you and to people, you know? Um, and then, you know, I think yeah. a big part for me, I've sat in on a couple of design critiques. You know, my, my background is, uh, in architecture and in design. Um, so I've sat on a lot of design critiques and, you know, a lot of the students that I'm saying, they have like really, really creative ideas, but they're still using like plastic, you know, I'm like, where's, where are your, your, where are your, you know, sustainable materials? Like where, where are you thinking of that as, as a future designer? You know, if you don't, if you guys in school don't change, uh, don't change this model, it's going to just keep repeating. So a lot of it is just in the initial, how do I get you curious? How do I get you engaged? Uh, and then how do I show you that there's a whole other world on the other side of what I'm telling you about? Um. Yeah, teaching curiosity. I think that's just uh, any any teacher could uh, could assign a homework assignment, you know, and and make this. If, if you want to pass this class, well, then you need to complete this project, and and uh, yeah. you know, it can be a little bit of a stick rather than a carrot sometimes in a classic education system. And and uh, whereas I think any any good teacher, certainly the ones I've talked to is if, if you can inspire people to actually want to go out and investigate other things on their own and even branches of things that the teacher themselves doesn't know about. I think that's, that's the, that's the goal. That's the aim. And, it, and actually I just want to add something really quick to that. Um, cause I, sure. I do this workshop on, um, you know, I call it world building the classroom and it's, it's all about, you know, essentially what you just said, like there's, there's a lot, actually a lot of carrots that, that educators can use and employ to get people interested in sustainability and STEM in general. And uh, in this workshop, you know, the, the, the premise is all of these worlds that we're seeing um, in all of these movies and films, there's science, you know, that is underlying the way that these worlds were created. And you have the opportunity as an educator to take the worlds that your students are interested in and deconstruct mm. them to show all of the science and all of the life science that goes into, you know, the ecosystem around, you know, um, 
uh what's the place called that i'm thinking of in harry potter like uh, oh, oh, all, all those yeah, yeah. there's ecosystems in there right there's relationships right. in there right um you know how many lumens are in a patronus spell you know like, there's <laughs> right. all these science things that you can deconstruct and 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 get your students further engaged that it doesn't have to be the stick all the time yeah i mean i i think there's there's new shows like black mirror that are you know taking mm-hmm. uh, uh, taking the torch of things like star trek and stuff might have might have set up and there's there really is quite a quite a few uh science concepts that you could take with there and and run with that show tends to skew more toward the paranoia aspects of of life and future and be a little creepier but still if that if that's what's resonating with some people uh, you know there there are there are ways of engaging it's funny that i this is an aside but as i'm talking about that i've seen a lot of videos recently of robots have you seen like the robot like dogs uh, that are like dancing and the choreographed thing oh, and yeah. people are like oh my god the robots are taking over like robots have been i used to work in factories robot robotic arms have been uh, <laughs> you know autonomously moving this piece from this piece all of a sudden that uh, now that the robots are dancing now you're concerned that the terminators right, right. are right around. yeah they've yeah. learned choreography <laughs> oh no <laughs> uh we better get off this planet quick yeah what were you gonna say it's the smart robots that you need to worry about it's not you know because you know technically a toaster could be defined as a robot right like so you know your fear of robots you 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 might want to shrink that down and yeah like those you know the things they don't show you is some of those robots you sneeze on them the wrong way and they're they're done right like they just fall over i mean some of them are ready to like turn themselves over which is really creepy but but yeah yeah that's you know the robots, I promise you, the robots aren't going to be the thing that ends, you know, planet Earth for us. <laughs> well, let's let's get into uh, uh, let's get into astrobiofuturism uh, more and talk about uh, we, we don't talk much about space on this show either, which is strange for a science show. I know, but um, I I uh, uh, we're talking about circular economies. That's something that um places like nasa now that we have these uh, uh, uh the billionaires to space contest oh. going on circular economies are something that that e- even the wealthiest people in the entire world are going to have to be thinking about in terms of in terms of design because this is you know i was i don't know how old i'm 41 billy i i don't need i don't obligate my guests to share but when i was growing Growing up, uh, you, you, the 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 carrot of you could be an astronaut one day was the was the big driving force through much of grade school to like this is why you should pay attention to uh, <laughs> uh, Christopher Columbus <laughs> classes because you could be an astronaut or something or other. It was always very confusing to me, but but. But there was there was this uh, this idea you get to space wow space but I imagine the reality of space is like 
you know, what's the bathroom situation up there is always what I want to know. There's like erectile issues that happen in space that they don't tell you about. Your the your your choice of cuisine is is probably fairly limited up there, and you talk about circular economies like you 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 want to make you want to make a space station sustainable. Uh, you know, we already talked about fertilizer and that sort. Of, you're you're you better be making use of every bit of everything up there. Could you could you talk? I I I don't know what you focus on in space but but if you could share some thoughts around that yeah no i i love everything that you said that that totally lines up with you know what i would say you know my focus in astrobiofuturism is it's it's the human element it's the human condition it's the human experience in space right like everything that you just said you know right now a trip to mars you know will take you know, you know, plus or minus seven, you know, six, seven, eight months at, at length. Right. And in that period of time, you are, you know, essentially in a a steel tube with, you know, four or five, you know, however many people, depending on which billionaire is paying for the trip. You know, you're drinking each other's pee. Right? Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, in terms of circular economy, all of all of your fluids, you know, the 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 international space station it collects your sweat it collects your saliva and your urine and it you know it recycles that because you can't just ship up water uh you know and all these resources like ad nauseum to people on the international space station so you have to make it as sustainable and closed looped as possible uh and you know there's there's things that you have to consider and there's a, a form of life that you have to get used to and one of those things is getting used to the fact that this person that I'm starting to hate because I feel like I've been up here too long, I still have to drink their pee tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> like space camping. That's that's it. That's it. And and it's not you don't you don't pack up, you don't get you don't get to go to Mars with your friends. You right. go to Mars with the people most suited for going to Mars on a technical level of like, this person's a good pilot. This person's exactly. a good maintenance person. This person's a good engineer. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, they're not pairing you like on Tinder by interests or something <laughs> like that. Space You're Tinder. not like, uh, yeah, which person <laughs> likes Tinder? <laughs> like all these people like board games. We'll put them all on this on the ship to Mars. No, you're getting paired with the the level of expertise, and then some, and then some one rich dude too that of course gets the biggest cabin that you gotta allow for, and doesn't understand that actually two hundred pounds of extra weight is. Doesn't sound like much here on Earth, but guess what? In space, that is a whole lot of extra weight to accommodate for. I don't care how many billions you have. And 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 that's the thing, right? Like, and you know, they, I mean, you know, NASA, all these space agencies, they do do like compatibility tests, right? But to your point, you're not going with like your drinking buddies from the bar on it. You know, this isn't a road trip, right? Yeah. You know, and on top of that, you're in literally the most hostile environment known to man at this point right um yeah you've got you know you've got to deal with you know microgravity you've got to feel deal with radiation um you know uh micrometeors all of these different things that in an instance if you 
if you're not on your P's and Q's, like it's literally life and death every second of every day, right? Like not even the people who, you know, originally left their their continents, their land masses and traveled in boats to other locations had to deal with the idea of I might not have air to read tomorrow, right? Like they might have had to deal with turbulent weather right. traveling, but they always had oxygen, right? Like that was never a concern. So it's yeah. it's foreign in a lot of ways. Um, you know, everything about our body is uh, physiologically made to exist and and thrive on this planet, right? Like not having gravity to your, you know, you yeah. mentioned, you know, the challenges with getting an erection in space. That's a real thing, right? Because there is no there is no gravity, yeah. which means that the blood in my body is not being pulled down to my feet like it usually is when I'm traveling. So all of my blood tends to you know, float above, you know, into my upper body. And you'll, you'll notice that like astronauts have puffy faces because, you know, there's nothing that's pushing all of that down, right? Your muscles atrophy, you know, there's all of these different, you know, psychological things from being isolated, you know, you're sleeping in a little cubby, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's not the greatest experience that people think. Um, yeah. so I'm, and, and there's, and I there's don't... just a lot of things. Yeah. No, no, no way is NASA letting you take two dick pumps on the space station <laughs> either. So now you're <laughs> thinking of having to drink each other's urine. There's a whole yeah, sort of, yeah. why don't they, have they tried just doing an all female space mission? I just feel like it takes a lot of the mess out of the situation. You got smaller bodies. You got you got less to feed. You got I I, I feel like I I don't want to make broad generalizations too much here, but it, but I I feel like there's a there's a little bit more of like a, a group and social unity and and cooperation. Not always the case, but guys are so hierarchical and everything else. Our poops are grosser, just everything about it. And it's, we just smell more. I, I, I think that's a, that's a solution from, yeah, from actually, nature. You know, I, I can't uh, think of the exact, you know, the exact source, but I know that it has penciled out that having um, women in space makes way more sense than, yeah. you know, at the very least than people think. Um, and I know that the Artemis mission coming up, that's going to be the first, you know, all female um, uh, trip back to the moon, uh, which will really? be exciting. Yeah. So we'll have our first um, women and women of color uh, on the moon during the Artemis mission. Amazing. Which I think is for 2024, I want to say. I mean, look, yeah, there's a reason why, why Shaq wasn't a jockey you know <laughs> like, like i'm not trying to discriminate here yeah. i'm just like we're talking about pragmatic issues yeah yeah that come along with certain constraints There's and uh so yeah i'm i i i bet i bet that all women mission i bet they're gonna be like yep that's told that's you. just what we're doing that's it yeah yeah told <laughs> yeah. you Didn't, about time you know uh there's also um you know there's also a lot of of insights around how people with you know physical uh you know uh i don't want to say disabilities but you know people with different body you know challenges or not challenges whatever mm -hmm. the correct way to say that is 
Um, sure. You know sure. why they make a lot more sense as space travelers because yes, they you know they are lighter. They're just as competent. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need. Right. Uh, I remember someone saying like, you don't need you don't need legs or you don't need feet in space because you're weightless. So mm. you know it. it on average, it costs around like ten thousand dollars per pound to send something into space. Yeah. Um, so you know that's that's why it's so hard to and so expensive to do a lot of this stuff because the cost of getting stuff up is is just you know uh, astronomical. No pun intended. Yeah, it really, it really. I I mean, I'm surprised we put humans up there at all. To be honest, I'm surprised it's that it's not just more probes and putting AI and that sort of thing. But I, I suppose that there's things that only humans can do and things that, that we can discover. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad you're on board for my all-female little people uh, space mission. Um, yeah, that's Well, I, I feel like that's why Stephen Hawking was trying to get to space. So, but like, he would have been perfect for the mission. And... And, but but I feel like he was trying to like scare us about the apocalyptic situations of Earth a little bit, just because he was so he he wanted to get into that zero gravity so much. I feel like he was maybe a little biased. But um, yeah. so <laughs> I'm getting off on weird tangents in this episode. <laughs> uh, can can we talk a little bit about? Um, I want to make sure and talk a little bit about your uh, your show. Uh, yeah. little giants on animal planet because i because uh for listeners if you get the animal planet if you have like uh one of these devices i have roku i'm not that's not a plug for roku that just i don't even know that i do have that actually i might have i forget what i i have a few different various amazon fire sticks or whatever whatever you have if you get the animal planet app um, you can check out Little Giants on there, which Billy is a co-host of. Can you tell people a little bit about the premise of Little Giants? I've seen all but the last two episodes so far, which I'm going to watch tonight. Oh, cool. Yeah, so Little Giants is the show with me and my dear friend uh, and wildlife expert, Bradley Trevor Grieve. Uh, and it's it's he and I going out to these really far remote places around the world and finding these little creatures uh, who have either some really interesting myth that's been built up around them, or they do something really, really fascinating in in terms of the uh, the biological adaptations that they have to live and thrive uh, in their in their niche, you know, in their niches and in their environments. So it's it's he and I going out trying to find these little things in their environment, uh, making fools of ourselves and trying to chase after these really fast, small little things. Uh, and then when we do catch some of them, um, we have this, uh, you know, mobile lab that we've set up uh, the, to try to capture and measure just how amazing the the individual abilities of these creatures are at their scale. Uh, and then through CGI, we explore, mm -hmm. you know, what it would actually be like if you took, you know, um, this mice who has this mouse who has like extremely powerful jaws and you scaled that mouse up to the size of a truck. Uh, if you scaled it up to the size of a truck, how strong would those jaws then be pound for pound? So it's, it's really fun. Um, it's, it's again, it's, it's one of those introduction kind of shows, family oriented. Uh, and it was just awesome to, to film it in general. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that is, uh, it, that's, it's, it's such a fun premise to think about, um, you know, when, when some small creature leaps, 
you know, compared to how far a human can leap or compared to how far, uh, you know, some other thing that's much better than humans at leaping can go. If you were to scale it up to that size, I, I was curious when I was watching, the, and obviously it's a introductory show for families and stuff. But but you've you've probably had uh, you've probably had this thought um, while making it is in terms of taking things from um, biomimicry and implementing it into things on, here on Earth or or for space travel or whatever. We don't always assume that the design is perfect and you, you you take aspects of of uh sharks having certain skin that's rough that's perhaps antimicrobial or something like that you take certain aspects like that and and maybe not use the whole thing in that same way when you take something like uh fly uh, some lizard that glides or whatever and and scale it up I mean, if you use like a honey, I shrunk the kid laser mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and then and then actually made them that size, they would all just collapse under the weight of gravity, wouldn't they? Right. Because of the, because of the way that their the way that their structures are actually and small things pack a punch, as I like to tell as many women as I can. And and Mike Tyson, for example, was not the was not the tallest. <laughs> uh boxer that ever lived he was he was uh <laughs> he was, <laughs> but but you know like the these small creatures have just different things that work from a from an architectural level, are you still enjoying my <laughs> penis joke? Just That's, I was, I was, oh. I was, I was, I was worried it wasn't gonna go over. It killed. Usually, I have a pretty subtle delivery, and I kind of just let things go right oh by. I'm glad. I'm I'm glad yeah, you enjoyed it. Well, uh, well a, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But, but how I, I oh no I, I i never get this much validation on my podcast <laughs> and for, uh, so it, it how how do you how do you go about taking something that you that you see like that and like like it, it, it is i love i love the show i i love the cgi scaled up things and showing like a here's this elephant ramming into a car or whatever compared to if this lizard was scaled up. But how, how do you actually take things from nature and think about how they can practically be implemented and scaled? Ah, I see. So this is more, this is more how to like, what is the actual process of biomimicry or are you yeah. saying like specifically for like, how do we think about these comparisons for the show? Uh, yeah, the more the first, more the first question in, okay. in terms of your, if you're, if you're literally trying to implement biomimicry ra rather than entertain a family friendly audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 I love that question. So when you're, when you're looking at something in nature, right? Like all science, and this is why we say like, this is a practice that people have been doing since time immemorial, right? Like this is not a new, it's, it's a trend. People use the word biomimicry, but it's, you know, it's an indigenous ancient, you know, everlasting thing that we've been doing. Right. Um, 
the example that I have that that comes to mind, which is not it's this is this is what I imagine biomimicry looked like back in the cave days, right? Mm. And I'll, I'll I'll use this to give you a more uh, direct answer. But you know, in my mind, one of the earliest forms of biomimicry, my theory is you know fishing nets and spiders, right? Mm. In my mind, like some ancient person came across a spider web and saw an insect that was trapped in that web trying to get out and said, this spider has created a great way to capture things. I wonder if I can take that same pattern, that same web design, and I wonder if I can capture fish the way that this spider just captured that. Now, you know, of course, webs are sticky, blah, 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 blah. But my, my, my initial thought is, you know, the, the function of the web is to capture, right? Or to ensnare or to trap, right? And if you look at a fishing net, especially some of the, you know, the older designs, they, they, they look very similar to spider webs, right? Mm. And they serve the same function to capture. So when you're, when you're doing, when you're practicing biomimicry, you're looking at the function of what the design is doing, right? And then you're mm-hmm. applying the function that the animal is solved for or the, the strategy, right? Because the, the function, there's different strategies that you can go, that you can create to address a function, right? If I'm trying to capture something, I can use tape, right? Or I can use, you know, a web design or I can use, you know, a trap. So there's different strategies, right? And so in nature, there's all of these different strategies to do this one function of capturing, right? I can, I can hide, I can camouflage myself and then jump out and grab it, right? Uh, or if I'm a spider, I can create a web and, and let something fly into it and it'd be trapped in the web. So all of these different strategies exist in the natural world. And so in biomimicry, what we're doing is saying, okay, of these strategies to capture something, this is the strategy that works best for the problem that I have to address this function. And that is what we're doing. We're, mm. we're saying like, how can we do this thing? And then we're looking over nature and saying, well, you know, this spider does this thing that I'm also trying to do. How is it doing this? Well, its strategy is to use a web. So maybe I can design something that serves the same function of capturing and use that for you know, something that is at the human scale. Does that, does that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that very much answers the question. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it. Cause yeah, I mean, uh, and, and I love thinking about how far back we have been uh, copying strategies from other life on the planet right. in terms of, I mean, it's just like you, you know, you, you use a, I mean, I think the idea of cavemen is kind of trite and inaccurate, but, but still, the idea of just like, hey, you can build a cave right. anywhere, and that's that's homes, that's our first, that's and then and then you know things like uh, things like um, pyramids or anything else like that, that resemble some certain like ant hills and different structures like that, and isn't there? Isn't there some mall somewhere that started using um, what they've learned yes. from termite 
mounds. Yes. Have you heard of this? Um, uh, to, uh, so they, they like in yes. Africa or something like that. So they didn't need air conditioning. They they used the saw that termite mounds are built up so much it gets air circulating from from the core of the ground to breathe yep. it out and and have the heat rise up that way. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of your other uh, favorite oh, examples okay. of biomimicry? So this is where this is where the the space stuff starts to intersect too. Um, one example that I just came across the other day, and again, part of you know part of why I'm interested in space is because you know NASA. The the cool thing about NASA is that you know it's a public you know it's a public entity in terms of you know it's government funded right, so the technology that NASA creates, we as citizens of this country uh, in the United States, we're able to license that technology and create businesses around it. So these things are referred to as spinoffs. So there's all these NASA spinoffs of technology that has been uh, licensed from something that was originally created from exploring space. Um, and there's this one company, I want to say it's called Eagle View, and they create sunglasses. So what's interesting about the story is, um, uh, NASA scientists were looking for a way to reduce the amount of radiation that was getting into, uh, you know, the eyes of astronauts. Hmm. And in order for them to find a way to, you know, reduce this amount of radiation, they actually turned to nature. So they studied, um, birds and I think specifically hawks, they studied hawks who have in their eyes this uh, level, this layer of oil that actually filters out uh, certain wavelengths of uh, uh, radiation and, and, and uh, light. And so from that, they mimicked the, the layer of oil um, in the eyes. So that, that gold sheath that you see um, in a lot of, you know, films and NASA helmets and all that to, to filter out that was inspired by, mm. uh, them studying the eyes of Hawks. And there's this company that created sunglasses that millions of people wear that was based on this space technology that was based on, you know, uh, the adaptation in the eyes of a bird. Um, so Amazing. there's a lot of fun stuff out there that was just like, you know, NASA looking at this um created this and now that's being you know used to create x y and z man it, it's it, that's that's a wonderful story and also just another remind there's there's another reason i hadn't thought of of why to not go to space you you come back <laughs> you're you're blind now you you have no muscle mass you're blind you're weak and you just got your functions back you come back uh, everyone's greeting you you can barely walk you're blind and you just have a raging heart on and as as you're trying to as that as that function <laughs> comes back i already used i say so, way too many <laughs> dick jokes in this episode billy That's oh right. my god it's, i'm gonna have to part of the this cycle. whole thing out <laughs> it's a part of the whole life Cycle. So now you see why I'm focused on the human experience in space because it, you know. Yeah, are are you trying to get to space? What's the what's the deal? I, NASA calls you up and says, "We we got a spot for you. We we need we need someone. Uh, we need someone to get up there, take a look around, make it a more more amusing 
for people uh, and make it a, a little more like a roller coaster ride, but also build efficiencies <laughs> based on nature. Biomimicry, while you're up there, we're going to have you do public education and give some talks and stuff, uh, as, as I know you're fond of doing. You have a lot of uh, fantastic qualities that would be good for space and space travel and, and be a good endorser generally. But do you really want to go up? I have, Are I you have interested? very little very little desire to very little to go. so i would oh, i would go man, for those same. reasons that you just said i would i would go to lower earth or, yeah. i would go to lower earth orbit yeah uh, i can even lower earth orbit right <laughs> like where the where the yeah. international space station is i would go up there sure, be like look sure. around you know flow no this is kind of dope all right time to go and then uh, come yeah, back yeah. down and be like <laughs> yeah, all right okay. check that yeah. unexpected thing off my list but you know, having a strong desire to be up there and live is not my not my interest. I am interested in creating a space farm. I think spar- farming in space is going to be a big thing, uh, and so I want to be you know one of the people who figures that out and and owns a space farm uh, for a couple of different reasons. But uh, living in space is not for me. It's not. It's yeah. Not, especially where if- things are now. It's, it's, it's if you work how really early, hard, yeah. yeah, yeah, if you don't realize you do how your early best. we are in in space exploration, like we are just yeah. like we we haven't even taken the full, the full first step. You know, if you were actually oh, yeah. thinking of like steps, like we've just lifted our foot to put it on a step, like we haven't even touched the step yet. Yeah, it's insane. It's it's like you. You worked so hard your whole life. You were at the top of your class. You went through this rigorous training. You got paired with people with that with like an, enough compatibility personalities, which is probably not a perfect matching anyway. And then, and then what you get in reward for that is an exceedingly dangerous and if not dangerous like if you're lucky enough to survive it pretty boring tedious uncomfortable trip to a vacuum an actual large infinite vacuum so which brings me to my last little thing what can we learn from this to inhabit like the desert or you you mentioned the ocean more people have been to space than the bottom of the ocean uh i'm interested that's what i'm i want to get in a submarine i want to see people are out there looking for they're building things oh i i wonder if we'll ever get a message from space oh what's this (laughs) thing that some some uh you know some air force guys saw some things shooting through uh space that was uh, for some reason they only had the camera running that is made out of toilet paper tubes and and uh, uh, wow isn't that exciting that maybe there's aliens here <laughs> if you watch if you watch uh, like oh, a, a day, uh, you watch one of these BBC, um, like blue ocean things or whatever. Uh-huh. What isn't an alien? You can't not bump into an alien. You can't go into the ocean. There's aliens just swimming around you everywhere. They're coming yeah. up to you. You're getting to look at them. 
it's it's incredible that that's where i'm heading that's where i want to go explore thoughts questions I'm, i'm with you i'm with you i mean i think you know it's it is crazy that you know it's 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 interesting how many people are fascinated by space exploration um and versus like like you said the ocean i mean the, the ocean is in a lot of ways i don't want to say it's more dangerous but it's as dangerous as traveling to space right like you yeah. got to deal with crushing pressure right like you get a hole in that thing you know i hope you wrote your love letters right you know it's it's so it's 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 crazy but there's but jar jar banks pulled it off and he was the <laughs> dumbest one ever and and there is life <laughs> there is life at the bottom of the ocean right like there's so much that we are yet to, yeah. to to tap into and see and i think um you know to your to your question of it's 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 almost ironic in a lot of ways because astronauts train for space you know in bodies of water right they have these huge tanks these giant you know tanks of water and they're, yeah. they're training yeah. with aquanauts and you know for, so the value of the ocean inherently to space is exponential just just from training people to go out there and i do think right. you know, for me, it is the hope that by by creating all of this technology to live in the most minimalistic place you know ever you know the vacuum of space we can find additional things that we can use beyond satellites i mean satellites provide us great insights and data that we use for you know tracking wildfires and you know there's all these great things that have already benefited the planet from space exploration right but um i'm hoping that we can you know the 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 thing that i want is i want the like i want the the robot that has bristles that can like filter out all this trash the way that a whale does. You know what I mean? Like that's, those are the yeah, kind of creations yeah, yeah. that I'm interested in creating or, or finding out about and talking about, um, you know, that's, that's the, the astrobiofuturism work. It's like, how do we reverse engineer yeah. a lot of this stuff, but how do we also apply it, um, in different ways that can help us better the planet? Um, yeah. Yeah. Take those, take those whale fin bumps and throw them on a fan. Throw them on a propeller. Come on, let's build some efficiencies here. Yeah, no, I, I think that is uh, to to me that's one of the most intriguing things about space is the, the uh, I, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's mostly a PR stunt, uh, uh, weird space parade situation. But in my opinion, but the, the putting the constraints and, and the amount of problem solving that comes out of that is, of course, going to have downstream implications. And if if you can if you can get six people to uh, to sustain in some little capsule in a in a vacuum, drinking their own urine. It's a, <laughs> certainly we can, certainly we can figure things out right. here on Earth right. to, uh, to make less waste and everything else. And that's really exciting to me. So before we wrap up, uh, where uh, uh, why don't you plug uh, uh, your stuff? Tell people, direct people to where you'd like uh, them to go. You have a great website and. I, I want people to check out Little Giants on Animal yeah. Planet. Um, uh, you're on Instagram. Yes, Plug all the yes. things. So <clears throat> um, uh, I do a lot of STEM-oriented workshops. Uh, I do a lot of you know keynote speaking. So if anyone's looking for a keynote, 
keynote speaker or a workshop for uh, students around storytelling, world building, biomimicry, the what I refer to as the nature of space, how you can find space, uh, how you can find nature in all of the different ways that space is being explored, um, uh, how to design for space. Uh, these are all different lectures and workshops that I give, and you can find me uh, at my on my website at billyalman.com, uh, or you can connect with me directly on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at Billy underscore Allman. Uh, same for Twitter, but I'm primarily on Instagram. Uh, I think I've aged out of TikTok, but I'm not sure yet. Um, <laughs> me too. And uh, yeah, and Little Giants is on Animal Planet or Animal Planet Go. Um, feel free to watch and enjoy and let me know what you thought about the show. Um, and yeah, thanks again for even having me, man. This has been, yeah. this has been hilarious. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining. Yeah. This is the fantastic information. I really appreciate, uh, everything that you're doing and your ability to, to com communicate these, uh, these ideas in a way that's really accessible for the public. So I appreciate you, Billy. Likewise. Likewise. Keep doing your thing, man. This is, this is great. <laughs> I don't think I've laughed that hard on a podcast. So I appreciate it. <laughs> oh thank you and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you more next week <laughs>